the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, a flow of violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Podcast here of Cooper Cherry. Today I'm very excited. I've got Ryan Engley, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at Pomona College, also co-host of the Why Theory podcast with Todd McGowan, and uh, actually have had Todd on as well in the past. One of my most popular episode, so be sure to check that out. Uh, Chad Lacan is, is the title of the pod, and I will put that in the show notes as well. But uh, Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, no, so great to be here. Thanks thanks so much. I'm happy to uh, to complete your uh, the the Y theory uh, binary on your... Uh, yeah, exactly. I've got the... The full Voltron. Yeah. Uh, what is it? The... Uh, damn it. What's Thanos have? The Infinity oh, oh, Gauntlet. The, I've got my... <laughs> I've got my two stones. So I, I, you know what? Someone finally, someone finally emailed me about this because, like, I, I, my God, I feel like I bring that up as an example, like every other podcast, and I have to, <laughs> I got to retire it. It's very useful. It's just like because you know, months, maybe even years ago, Todd and I said we got to stop using Trump as an example of stuff because it just oh, works yeah, for some. And but we just keep doing it. It's just like it's per, it's it's irresistible. It's hard not to honestly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think in particular for me. Trump especially is such a good, I mean, it's a way to explore Baudrillard. It's a way to explore Lacan. Because mm-hmm. I, I think just in general, that kind of like, I don't even know, I mean, buffoonish fascism, like there's something yeah. deeply unconscious about about that appeal, which this is, I don't know, I've been obsessed with Lacan for like the past mm-hmm. year primarily for this reason and kind of like, I guess, maybe the political economy of psychoanalysis is... A way to describe it. I don't know if it's the best. Oh no! Kind of well, how I formulate it. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, do, do you know the um? Do you know this term? Uh, Zizek writes about this. Uh, do you know the quilting point? Do you know this from Lacan? I a little. A little. I've mainly from listening to you guys. Oh, okay. So. Wow. Hey, hey. There's a nice you, shout out. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the quilting point, which is um, Lacan mentions this. I, I think it's in seminar two. It's just one one time uh, that he mentions it, but um, it's this is relevant for, for Trump. I'm going to try not to talk too much about this because we got other stuff to talk about, but I guess this is also, I would, I would argue this, what I'm about to talk about is also a narrative concept. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get there. But so the quilting point, he gets the, um, he gets the name for it, or I'm not going to do a stupid, uh, I'm not going to give a French accent on how he, uh, what he actually writes, but it's like Le Point de Capitones is how it's written in French. And it's like um, the button on an upholstered chair, Okay, the buttons on an upholstered chair, what they do is um, they lend a level of design cohesion, okay, to the chair. Like it makes sense. Like you see like uh, two buttons, right, on a on an upholstered chair on a backing to it. And it's like, okay, that's like I see it's like even, like it makes sense. But what does it also do? It keeps the batting from coming out from the from the back. Okay. So what the what the quilting point is, is it's just it is just this this we can say this element, this the, or 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 um, this maybe like this figure. Okay, we're talking about Trump that retroactively makes uh, sense of that which came before it. Okay, so 
Um, one of the things that I don't know if I said this on the podcast before, but like Trump is not like he didn't invent white supremacy and, and racism. I mean, that, whatever. That's a that's a straw man argument to think that he does. I don't, right. I don't think many people say that. But what he is, what he does act as, he is the quilting point for the racist project. He is the period at the end of the sentence, the racist sentence. And it makes sense of all that content b- before. Right. He. Um, he stops the batting from coming out of the chair and it's all out and, and, and like it, it, it reaches its full, um, articulation as a coherent project, even though he's incoherent, but the full, the, 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 the racist project reaches like full coherency through him and Stephen Miller and that whole administration, regardless of whether, you know, he personally believes in any of it or not, you know, cause I, I think like, um, you know, Todd and I talk about this. I don't think we talk about this on the show, but like, I, I think we we're pretty sure that the only thing he actually maybe really, really believes in is that he's kind of nominally anti-war, but he doesn't even really understand that point either. But everything else is just are people going to like me for it or the people who already like me going to like me for it? Well, then I need to do it. I got to do it uh, twice as hard and, and 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 much. You know, that's maybe the operating principle. But um, so. While he himself may be incoherent, he coheres this wider project. And that that's sort of like the 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 insight of the quilting point, which I think um that idea in Lacan goes away and when he starts talking about the master signifier, which kinda of does this a similar thing. But um the uh Zizek writes about the quilting point in um uh, Looking Awry, and he talks about the ending to Casablanca. And there's a story, um there's a story in Hollywood that they didn't know how they were going to end the film up until the they, they shot it, which is, is not true. The ending had been written out. But this is it's like a popular myth that they they arrived at um, Humphrey Bogart not getting at the plane, just like almost like immediately. Right. You know, right. Right. When it, right. Right before he was going to shoot it like then then they did it. And um, what he the reason why he talks about this is he says that actually no matter what the ending was. It, it, like it um because people always talk about like oh it's so great it feels so organic like we just we move through the story and it makes so much sense what what you get there and his point is that like when we get to the end it doesn't matter what the ending is it would always feel organic because it retroactively makes sense of everything that came before it so if he had let's say shot uh Victor Laszlo and gotten on the plane you'd be like yep he was a selfish guy that's organic that makes perfect sense or you know <laughs> so like that's that's sort of uh, you know or if um you know ingrid bergman's character she leaves both of them you'd be like you know what that's great that's 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 strong that makes sense that's a total like that would have totally made sense or if you know uh rick gives himself up it's like yeah that's heroic it's, like that makes perfect and it's from so it's from the end backwards that you can actually see the uh you can see the steps for it. It's, it's not, it's not in a linear understanding that, and I think that this is a kind of an important narrative concept for, for, um, employing like Lacan. It's not, it's not from steps, uh, A to Z that you, you understand it. Like you gotta be really, really careful going A to Z. It's when you get to Z, Z makes you aware of like M and L, you know, you know, like, like you, you start to, yeah. you start to see the, 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 the steps that, that, that you, that you missed basically. And so it's always this backwards looking thing. Yeah, I think this really sounds. This reminds me of the conversation that you and Todd had about Hegel. <laughs> yeah, kind of re yeah. rereading. Mm-hmm. I guess the the first portion of the phenomenology, and then kind of get like at that point, it kind of then it retroactively makes yeah. things make sense. Well, I mean, like you know, you you that's a perspicacious point, Cooper, because <laughs> um because you know Zizek's whole uh his. Apart from, you know, the 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 political stuff that I, I think it's part of what 
made him very popular, especially on, on YouTube and stuff like that. But like his main uh, theoretical and philosophical uh, contribution to scholarly thought is this um, dialectical understanding of Lacan as a repetition of Hegel, although Lacan doesn't understand this. Like he, he right. did, he's not consciously like aware of this and, 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 uh, that's sort of <laughs> the, the irony of that, right? The, yeah. Right. The irony. Well, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean like the, there's, um, I don't know if this is Zizek's line or if it's somebody else, but the, like the moment, like, uh, the, the moments where Lacan thinks he's most Hegelian, he's least and the moments where he thinks he's the least Hegelian, he is the most like, so it's that kind of, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, so the, the, one of the things that, um, that, that Zizek emphasizes about Hegel is this, is this retroactivity. And, um, it's not surprising that he also finds this in, uh, in Lacan, you know, it's part of that, that wider project and it's very good that you found it too. So that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> but, uh, the re the top of discussion for us today, I think is going is going to be more focused on, uh, on seriality. This is something Ryan has been, uh, spending a lot of time working on mm -hmm. dissertations and yeah. perhaps, or that it, now you're, is still book? working on the dissertation? No, 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 no I'm done. It's getting published. Uh, yeah, well, so the um, I mean, dissertations always get published uh, by the university, but I, um, I, you, it's so funny though when you go through it because you have to pick like what permissions you want. Like, do you want it made available immediately, or do you want like a the the if if you are thinking of trying to publish it in another form, the thing that you're told to do is like you can get like a two year window where it's not published at all, and then you try to turn it into a book manuscript. So I'm in the the manuscript writing. Um, portion of this, uh, turning it in because the genres are different. When you write a dissertation, you're trying to prove to your committee that you have the right to know what you're like to even say anything. And when you, when you write a book, like it's, um, I, I think you have to, you, you have to get out of that mindset that you're trying to like, you're, you're trying to, um, you're trying justify to your own. Yeah. Yeah. Like because it's bad. It's bad. It's not good reading, you know, like, right. so, um, Anyway, so yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. I'm trying to get the the dissertation ease and the the, the dissertation DNA out of my um out of the manuscript. Um, and uh, for one, trying to turn um sort of like the core ideas from it into a um an article publication that that we'll hope will 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 go out. So um, that it's it's out now. I will not say where because that that destroys peer review of anyone's <laughs> listening. So, so, um, but yeah, so we'll see. I, most, m most often people, uh, you know, people have something published and then they talk about their work on a podcast like this. So I'm doing it the opposite. So hopefully, hopefully that that's well, maybe we, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe you'll have to add a later edition or something like that. Uh -huh. We can uncover some new ground here. <laughs> That'll be great. Yeah, no, I'd right. love to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this should be a dialectical thing, you know, between me and you with, with, with this idea. So yeah, absolutely. But uh, before we get too much into that actual, let, uh, set the table for us in terms of at what point did you decide or become a masochist and <laughs> and and get into theory in general? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so my so to chart my own uh, intellectual history in undergrad. Um, well, uh, the most important thing I, I uh, actually this is, I'll start here. This this is one of the, the most important things to know about me, and I'll try to be brief about this. Is that um, uh, what is it? It's 2019. So 12, uh, 12 years ago, I was in a really serious car accident and I nearly died. And I was in a coma for five days. I was in the hospital for a month and I suffered a traumatic brain injury. And, um, I was driving to college. Actually, I was driving to community college, uh, when this accident happened and, um, going through like rehab, um, afterwards, like I just 
felt very, uh, I had my mind taken away from me. You know, I could, I, I, I could, I could think, but I had to kind of, it's such a crazy thing to, for me to remember or to say, but I had to kind of learn how to read again, not like make sense of the words, but like the physical thing of making your eyes go from the beginning of one line to the end of the other. And then to the beginning of the next was something that like was actually, was really hard for me for years, uh, afterwards. And it was just such a, like, it was such a sudden and cruel feeling like debasement of like. Uh, I don't know my intellection that I like I right. I've was uh, like really really determined from that moment forward that like I want to be as far away from this feeling as as possible because when you have it's it's a little bit like have you ever had a concussion before uh, not that I not no, you know the, that's, a, that's that's that you nailed the answer that's the right answer yeah um if uh you know, the, the concussion symptoms are a little bit similar, but like when you have a traumatic brain injury, it's, it's like, you know, it's a little more all the time and, and, and constant. But like, if you want to, I did talk about this on one, on one of the podcasts. So I apologize if, if, if this is old information for you, but, um, when this is not how thoughts work, but just to imagine this metaphor of having traumatic brain injury is like, if thoughts begin in the back of your head, when your brain is like kind of broken, like, like that, like it's, it's, you're trying to push a thought through like a, a just like a solid block of uh whatever cheese that makes it seem less <laughs> horrible so you're trying to push a thought through a solid block of cheese and then you maybe get like a little bit out on the other side and um and 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 but you just it's just it's just hard so it's hard it's hard to to have that that kind of thing uh you know, dominate the way that your like interior life works for like so long. So like that was like a really, um, that's my origin story, uh, really for, for this. It, now I, I didn't go to, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't like, I need to read Kant and you know what I mean? Like I didn't have, it wasn't like that, but it was just this, um, this thing where I, I, I needed to take uh formal, I felt like I really needed to take formal education seriously, like in, in, and to like push, like, okay, like again, like, like no, like, yeah, okay. It's two years later. I don't, I'm not having headaches all the time anymore and, and I can think, but I need to go even further than that. And it's like, okay, now it's four years later and I got to go even further beyond that. And then like, so this, this was the thing because it was just such a, like I said, it was a sudden and cruel thing. So I went back to college, uh, sooner than the doctor said I should. Um, but, uh, and they were probably right. I probably shouldn't have gone back, but as soon as I did, but um, cause it was like, it was, it was exhausting. It was like, it was mentally and physically exhausting. Um, uh, but I started to do, I started to work, um, with Shakespeare. That was because it was hard. It was hard for me. Like I, 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 I like it was hard for me to make sense of it. And so I gravitated, maybe this is the answer to the question. Why the masochism? I gravitated <laughs> toward these things that were really, really difficult for me because I felt like they were the things that were going to push me past this, like, again, this like originary, this, like this moment where, um, uh, like I, I had uh, a lot of, uh, intellectual, uh, capability taken away from me. So, um, so I started with Shakespeare and I, um, applied to the university of Vermont where Todd McGowan teaches, um, as a, like as a Shakespeare scholar, like that was going to be the thing I was going to do. And, um, my, but my, uh, undergraduate thesis had been about, uh, Shakespeare, Aristotle and queer theory and talking, looking at friendship, 
because uh, Aristotle has this like uh, this this model of friendship in the the Nicomachean Ethics um, of uh, and and I was just tracing how th- this model of friendship it, like plays out in Shakespeare, but there's like there's like a kind of a queer um, like homoerotic like thing to it. So it was just like so I was I was like playing with this very this old right classical kind of. Uh, the classical philosophy, which is essentialist, and then like Judith Butler and like this non-essential, you know, then and, and, and uh, Lee Edelman, or I don't know if I'd been there yet, but like this, um, you know, this more contemporary uh, queer theory uh, stuff going on. Um, let's see, like 2008 when when I when I was working on this uh, lies. To, no, that's that's a total lie. 2011. That's that's it. And um, anyway, uh, so one of my like influential professors in uh, undergrad ha- had been educated by Lee Edelman, who is a, um, a queer theorist and, uh, uh, but a psychoanalytic Lacanian one. And th- I had read some of, uh, no future, uh, which is his, uh, big book. Uh, uh, it's not, it's not big. It's actually a really thin, but like incisive, uh, volume and, uh, like divisive, I think in, in queer theory, really important. And so that was, that was kind of my intro my entry into, um, into psychoanalysis. It was through the, it was through queer theory. And then I got to, to UVM and, you know, Todd is the, like the people's Lacanian, I think. Um, and he, I was just like, um, it was, it was just, there were a lot of questions that, thinking through Lacan and Freud opened up for me that I really, really liked thinking about that, that that's, that's what got me is that, um, like I was saying to you before the, in the, in the pre-show, uh, right. Is, is like, um, with Freud and dreams, it's like, okay, he doesn't write this. This is a, this is a line from, uh, don't hug me. I'm scared. Uh, but dreams are a movie that play in your head. Okay. And it's, it's just for you, but, and you're the only, you're the only audience and yet you don't understand it. It makes no, it's, it's just baffling. Like it makes no sense. You're in your house, but it's not your house. It's like this Burger King that you went to right, when you were seven yeah. and someone else was there, but you don't know who it was. It had the face of like a dog, but it wasn't a dog. It was definitely your brother. <laughs> and it's just like, well, why, you know? And, and so that's, so, so that's, that's exactly right. Freud, why indeed, <laughs> why indeed when it's just for you, you have this opportunity to make sense for yourself and you do not. Why? What's going on? Like there, there must be some sort of hermeneutics. There must be something else, yeah. you know, happening. Um, and there, there are elements being condensed. That was one of his big words, condensation, and then uh, or being displaced. Displacement being the other one from the dream theory. And it was just like these kinds of questions that I thought were like so fascinating to to think through. And I, um, my the whole time throughout undergrad, the thing that I really, <laughs> the thing that I really wanted to work on was television, and I and I didn't because I lo- I I. I love television more than you love anything. So uh, I, I, I promise uh, I love it so much and I didn't get to work on it. And uh, television is not really Todd's field, but he just has like a really great attitude working with graduate students. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know it. But if you want to work on it, like, sure. Like, like, I'll like, and like, this is a theoretical uh, basis. And, you know, um, and he's, you know, he's just able to, um, you know, um, he, he just, you know, to, 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 to talk sugar about my co-host, um, he just knows a lot of stuff and even the stuff that he doesn't know, he's able to, um, like quickly, like bring an approach to it that, uh, that works, you know, and is, is, is pedagogical and really helpful. So, um, that, 
uh, put me on the, like I wrote this uh, thesis on, uh, on television and psychoanalysis and David Bordwell and cognitivism and trying to um, marry this uh, schism between um, psychoanalysis and post theory uh, through television, the study of television narrative. And I carried that project on to university of Rhode Island where I worked on, as you said earlier, uh, it's, I, sharpened that like a little bit more and it became a, uh, a theory of, uh, of seriality, uh, specifically serial narrative. But I, my, as we may get to, I think it, um, I think thinking ser- seriality through psychoanalysis, um, gives us a theory of seriality as such that can be applied, not just in narrative context, but in non-narrative ones as well. So that's, I will let you talk at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny. Um, there's actually in terms of how small the world is. So, I got exposed to a lot of, well, I think actually in my intro to philosophy class, mm-hmm. one of the professors uh, discussed um, Derrida a little bit, mm-hmm. but it was also just kind of an undergrad degree in English at mm-hmm. Texas State, and mm-hmm. so I got a little bit of exposure to... Did uh, you know Todd taught major. there? Yes, okay. I was, I, that's actually that's what I was going to get at. So, so sorry. I was going to get at. Uh, <laughs> so I uh, actually, his replacement at Texas State... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I forget her name at the moment, maybe something Smith. Anyways, uh, she kind of exposed me to Deleuze and Watari mm. and Baudrillard and then a little bit Foucault and even uh, she had us read that Laura Mulvey essay, the yeah, male yeah, gaze yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we watched, uh, we watched like double indemnity, but yeah, I thought it was so funny. I was looking up, I was like, listening to you guys. And I was like, you know, what the hell i'll give see if todd's willing to come on the show so yeah i'm looking through a cv to say is this the like is this the same todd mcgann saw texas state i was like holy shit that is so funny. what are the odds right that is so funny yeah that's right that's right um he told he told, he told me this story not to um and this doesn't i hope this this does not damn texas state but he told he told me this story I, he probably doesn't care i bring this up but he was teaching a film class and there were just like kids in the class like talking like it was high school and he was just like he's just like guys just you know you got to stop I'm, I'm doing this here and i guess they they said they're like listen what you're doing doesn't matter and like we're gonna keep doing it. and they just like kept talking to each other wow. and he just had to t- teach shit. the rest of the class which Jesus. is like which is one of those moments that like that's um you know there are there are moments far like that's a castrating moment that's a very you know because all it, all castration is symbolic um, but there's a lot, there's a, a, teaching is like a, is like a vulnerable thing. And there are just so many moments where, um, th- like you really only have symbolic power. It's it's really, it's, it's, and, and, and you have to understand that I, I think otherwise you'll, you'd be insecure about it and you'll do things like the second you see a cell phone, you'll say that that person's absent. You know, I know, I know people who, who do this. If they see a cell phone, it counts as you're absent that day. And I just think that like, that's acting out of insecurity of your own uh, position and, and trying to hide right. your own sort of castration at the front of the classroom. Exactly. Yeah. What's, what's the, un- what's going on unconsciously there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's just like, well, it's just like, oh, but if they, if they realize they don't have to pay attention to me, then like, I would, they want, they want, you know, so cool. <laughs> yeah. The whole symbolic order or chain. It, what, what is it? Signifying chain? Yeah. It breaks yes. down at that point. It, uh, yeah, it's, well, I mean it, or it, what happens is like, it, you know, it, re- you reveal, reveal the, the, the fiction of the entire arrangement. Um, and like, I, I feel this most acutely when I need technology to work for me and it doesn't. And I'm just like, I'm just a guy in, 
I'm just a man standing in front of a bunch of people waiting for a computer to work for me. Like, and that's it. That's all I am in that moment. Like I, like I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a professor of media studies. I am like, a, I am a guy trying to go to the geek squad at Best Buy because his <laughs> phone doesn't work. That's what's happening. So, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, but jumping into seriality directly, yeah. Ryan, where do you, honestly, where do you think is a good starting point? Uh, I'll just let you know kind of, where my head went to immediately was sure exploring the sort of Lacanian notion of desire mm-hmm. through the seriality or the element of it mm-hmm. as far as, okay. And, and looking back at, is it Zizek that has the example of the, the limit set by the Coke can with desire? <laughs> yeah, that's a, well, yeah, the super egoic injunction to enjoy. Like that's the, that's the, that's the code that, that you, so, um, yeah, this, this idea, um, it, it comes up with him and like a number of other scholars, like a psychoanalytic theorist around the same time, which is that the things that, um, that you start to see that around, I don't, I don't want to put a date on this because it's, it's, it would be, these are, these are all the timeless phenomena, like regardless of context. Right. But, um, one of the things, um, in sort of like, uh, late capitalism and, and, and uh, that people were saying, um, in, uh, in the clinic, psychoanalytic clinics on, on, you know, the, the couches of uh, psychoanalysts is people saying, complaining that they felt like they weren't enjoying enough, that they were doing, that they're not, not enjoying life enough. They're, they're not like, I went on a cruise and it was supposed to be this great thing. And I just, I wasn't happy. And, 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 and this is, uh, this like, um, Zizek writes about this in a number of different texts, but this is like the superego is telling you that you, um, I think the, like the high school understanding of the superego is that it, like, it makes you feel like guilty. Like it, it governs your, right. um, your, it's, your, your, your behaviors, but like you push that a little bit further and it's like, yes, it does make you feel guilty for not like doing things for not enjoying and enjoying enough for not, um, for not, uh, dead poet society for not carpe diem, you know, enough, like, you know, like you, that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's the superego, um, at, at, at work. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, so I, I think your, your instinct about, uh, desire and, and seriality are, are, are right on, uh, which, which we'll get to, but I want to start, um, I think it'd be most helpful, uh, to have this conversation mostly through the lens of narrative. Like, you know, we talked about, sure. you talked about this. Um, so serial narrative, just to put this out there really quickly, is this story issued in parts? That's it. Story issued in parts. Um, and this uh, begins in earnest and, and especially in terms of mass media in uh, 1836, when uh, Dickens publishes uh, Pickwick papers, the most important thing. So there were, had been serialized versions of like, Robinson Crusoe, like, you know, years before, but, um, Daniel Defoe had already written the whole book and then it was released in pieces. Okay. So Pickwick Papers is, is kind of the first thing that is written alongside its publication. That's a big deal. Um, uh, Jennifer Hayward has like, uh, a a really great book. It's called consuming pleasures. It's uh, for like the study of serial narrative. It's really, really good book. And it's so funny because a bunch, like I, I see this all the time in, um, in scholarship on serial media is people cite her and they only cite the first chapter. Like they like basically are citing like the first five pages. It's like, and I, it's, it's so many people. It makes me think that like people that have never read all of Jennifer Hayward's like uh, quite good book. But anyway, um, 
So one of the things she points out about um, Pickwick Papers that makes it significant is that like it wasn't selling super well. And then Dickens comes up with this Cockney character named Sam Weller and people love it. And then he's just like, I'll give you more Sam Weller. I'm going to change the story to, you know, and that is a thing that we see, you know, that's a that is a pivotal. That is a hallmark um, moment or, or, or feature of the serial storytelling is that um you know, I, I think about like uh, Lost when uh, Michael Emerson was on for three episodes to play this person, this uh, 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 just like a character that was, again, only going to be on for three episodes. And he was so great. Audiences loved him so much. He became a mainstay of the show for the next like four seasons. You know, they, they change the whole they rip up the narrative and they change the whole thing. Uh, and then you have on the other side, this guy um, who is supposed to be a major character hated living in Hawaii. And so they had to kill him off the show. They had to get him off the show. They, they had no solution. So like the, um, and for another, again, con- uh, contemporary example of, of, of this sort of, uh, uh, this, the same element that acts as like a benefit for a serial story, right? When you can update it as people go along is also like a hindrance because it kind of means that like things can happen. Um, uh, so like, I firmly believe that the way Sopranos was supposed to end was that Tony Soprano's mother was going to kill him, but she died in real life. And that you know, um, that, uh, so we'll never know if that, that was oh, going to have been such a great, <laughs> that's such a great idea. It's kind of like the reverse Oedipus. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that, that's, um, but maybe that's, um, maybe that's me like, you know, that's, <laughs> I'm coming at it too, too hard from the psychoanalytic angle, but, um, so Anyway, so yeah, so uh, what seriality or serial storytelling affords is this like, um, uh, it has these gaps in it, okay? This is like, this is to me the most important thing. It has these gaps and what can happen in these gaps is that the text itself can be adjusted. Um, You know, audiences can participate in the show, uh, like, you know, uh, posting theories about um, you texted me, texted me, uh, emailed me about uh, Game of Thrones, right? Like the whole, like the R plus L equals J, right? Like that, like big, big theory uh, when the books are being written in the show. Okay. So you can get involved in fan communities and, and th- things like that, that happens in between. Um, but there's something, and, and so this is how most people write about it is that like, there's this guy, Frank Kelleter, who, um, is a, edited this volume, I think it's called a uh, media of serial narrative. And he writes that, uh, that, that serial, the serials narrative is not a, sorry, seriality is not a narrative formalism, but it's like a audience practice. Okay. That's how, that's how like a, like a lot of the field is, 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 is talking about things at, at this level. And I, like, I, I accept that. And I think that that's, I, I think it's an interesting way of looking at like the, the text, but what I um, want to, to look at is um, the most, like if you had to boil seriality or serial narrative down to one thing that is a, a shared across anything serial it is this gap okay it is this gap between installments and i think um as we might come to like i think it's gaps within installments uh, uh as well and so this this gap is um is interesting uh what do we what do we what, what do we uh what do we make of it and so this is where freud comes in in um uh Studies on hysteria, right? I sent you this this little little uh, blurb from Studies on Hysteria. He writes this um, this thing. I think is so interesting that um, at the end of an analytic session, it just it has to end at some point. 
And so like, it's like 50 minutes or an hour um, is like, just, that's just the way that it has to be. Like there's gotta be an end to it or it could just go on forever. And what he finds in, in, in this early stages is that like, you know, it doesn't really matter what is being talked about at the end of the session, but if it ends before the analyze sand is done talking and they got to go, whatever they were just talking about, it, it doesn't it, like it, it didn't reach a resolution. So it troubles them and, and they, and they suffer more than if they'd just been able to, uh, to, to talk. And he says, and it makes this amazing comparison to the reader of, uh, someone who's reading their favorite serial story when they're in the newspaper and there's like a climactic speech or like someone has fired a gun and then you read the words to be continued. And that feels bad. Like whatever, like if that, if you just had like 10 more seconds and it resolved, then you don't have to think about it. But because it didn't, okay, because there was no resolution, because what the to be continued does is it breaks this continuity, but it also binds it at the exact same time, okay? It it like it it breaks this narrative uh, continuity, the story to be continued, okay? Like uh like you're you're not in the diegetic world anymore. You're looking at these these words that are like coming from the outside. So it's but this is the link to the next uh, installment. You see, right? So it breaks, it binds at the same time. And he, I, I think there's, it's like really fascinating. There's real, there's no real follow-up. There's like a, not another reference to professional reference to seriality and anything else that Freud writes, but it's at the beginning. It's in studies and hysteria. This is like the first major text. He writes this with Breuer. This is like announcing to the world. This is what psychoanalysis is. Um, and he says in the very beginning that analysis has a serial problem basically. And this will become a thing for him and will become a thing for Lacan, which is when does analysis end? What's, what's the analytic ending look like? Like, like how, like how do, how do, how do we get to the, to the end? And Freud famously said the cure is a bonus, right? Like that's, <laughs> you know, um, and anyway, so let's make a narrative, uh, jump here, right? Let's, let's, let's pull this back. The reason why I'm drawn to this is that, um, since, um, Okay, so recently, I just mentioned Game of Thrones, you get like um, a bunch, like many, many people online wish that they would redo the entire eight, uh, eighth season, right? You know, like the, there, there is something about serial narrative that inspires this like mass um, fandom, which is why, you know, a lot of media study scholars are into this, right? This, this ma- But also, and this to me goes outside of just textual analysis, and we have to get into the territory of talking about the psyche, which is why I think psychoanalysis is well positioned to talk about this within seriality. Um, like, the, like starting a petition because like the show you liked didn't end the way you wanted it to. Like, I think in the abstract, that seems like kind of crazy, like that seems like it's way too, but you know what, but like, let's, but no, I want to validate that. Cause think about it. You, when you watch it, when you watch a show, a serial show, you live with it. You know, it's not like these Netflix series that come out and then you, you, you do it. You, they, 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 they make it in such a way that you can just get, you can just get rid of it. You can just, you can just dive into it and get rid of whatever narrative tension, like, like uh, as soon as possible. Okay. But with Game of Thrones or any traditionally aired series, th- these plots are there. It's on your mind. You're thinking about it like you and you you get invested in it. You you know, and this is where 
desire, right, gets gets sort of um, in both, I think, in a popular sense and in a psychoanalytic sense, gets wrapped into it. So like, um, so but then again, I think it's the exact same thing as with psychoanalysis. What do you do with ends? What about endings, right? Like you could probably, you've probably off the top of your head could name like, like what, what are some like famously bad endings to a series that you can think of right now? Hmm. Okay. See this pause. <laughs> there are so many that you can't think of them because that's, this is, this is, I mean, we, you know, we can throw them out. So people have th- said this about game of Thrones, right? We just talked about Sopranos. So a lot of people don't like that. The, that David chase made 30 million people think their cable went out. <laughs> so like f- folks don't like that very much, but uh, you know, lost Battlestar Galactica, St. Elsewhere, you know, like there, there's some, some major ones that, that are like divisive would be the, the better way of right. putting it. And th- my sort of gambit here is that, um, there's, we get so wrapped up in two serials. Okay. Because it reflects something that is like deeply, uh, personal and private. And what that reflection is, is the structure of the psyche itself. Psychoanalysis is all about gaps. Okay. When you say something you don't mean to right? the slip of the tongue, that's a, that's, that's this like gap in your conscious functioning that is like now opened and your, your unconscious comes out for a little bit. One of the, the two of the other ones, uh, parapraxies that don't get talked about as much are, um, misreading something. Like, have you ever, I don't know. You had to do something at like a, like like via like email. You had an email reminder of something. You had and you didn't maybe you didn't really want to do it and you misread the time or the date and you missed it. Yes, you're shaking your head, listeners. You're all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> all the time. This happens. Yeah, it's like that happens a lot. Or you mishear something. Like what my favorite example. Like if you mishear song lyrics. Okay, that's you unconsciously putting something into the song and then you sing it to yourself for years until someone until <laughs> till someone tells you this is my favorite I'll give you my favorite example my sister um do you know do you know the clash at all yes okay all right okay you know um garage land off the first album uh i don't know them that well okay all right there we go <laughs> <laughs> okay so it's the song is garage land okay but we don't say garage i'm sorry they, they in england they don't say garage they say garage okay so the, the line is we're a uh, we're a garage band, okay. We've uh, we we come from garage land, okay. All right, we're gotcha. okay. My sister, this didn't make any sense to her. She heard, um, we've come for Gary's bags, and <laughs> like like where are Gary's bags? Those are the two lines that she that she that she heard, okay. And that's just like I don't know. She had to make this like narrative thing happen in the song like because it didn't it didn't make any sense <laughs> to her or just like you know this is the famous ones excuse me while i kiss this guy right instead of kiss this guy or purple haze or like there was a whole commercial about people mishearing the lyrics to rocket man that was like that, that came out recently or something so like this would be anyway this would be another example of like a like a gap in the psyche that is just so like proximate and, and personal that you know that it happens all the time um and i think that we're drawn to the serial form because it is itself gapped. And when we engage with it, you know, as like a lot of uh, media scholars talk about, we engage with it in these gaps. Um, it becomes like, you know, it becomes ours. This is where we get the idea. Have you ever heard of this phrase? It's mostly talked about with video games, a head cannon, 
You ever heard about this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So this is where you get like a headcanon where you're just like, you know, you you make the thing make sense in a certain way. And then if there's later information that arises that contradicts with your headcanon, you're just like, that's not it. That's not my show. <laughs> that's not that's not my story. That's that, you know, and and um I, I so yeah, so this is in uh in in basic outline. Uh, that's what serial storytelling is. What seriality is um, for for me is the study of the gaps, and I think that the the gap has this um, psychical resonance and 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 why it um, why serial properties like throughout time, like really since like eighteen thirty six, like people waiting at docks for the the new issues of Dickens to 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 come in to be dispersed, and like he had to change the ending to uh, Great Expectations because people didn't like it. And so it is just true. So now, so the ending, if you've ever read the book or anyone has ever read the book, the ending that we know is the one that he changed because like, you know, now, um, he, he capitulated to the game of Thrones fans that wanted a different ending. Like, you know, he did that whenever that book came out right in the 19th century. And it's, uh, you know, this, it's not just, it was not just England. Like, you know, this is happening in France, this massively popular serial called um the mysteries of paris in america uncle tom's cabin also in 19th century just massive people waiting for it. fandom just like it is like today and you also so and you have issues with endings just like with great expectations and you have like sort of uh political things that that also create issues with endings um like uh tolstoy's anna karenina which was very like heavily critical of russian uh, military operations at the time it was published in this uh, uh, newspaper, the Russian Russian Messenger at the time, and they they stopped it. They pulled it with the last in, um, installment to go after Anna Karenina throws herself in front of the train. And so, in the original like publications, they just put out a um, like a William Barr style d- description of what happened in the rest of Anna Karenina, <laughs> and. Oh it was, yeah, it's unbelievable. It just says what happened to Anna, what, what happened in Anna Karenina after the train. It's, and then it's like just a description of what Tolstoy wrote and they refused to publish the, the rest of it in its initial run. So like, um, yeah, anyway, so this, this, like the invention of this, of this form, uh, which, I mean, there are a lot of things we can talk about it, which is like uh, yeah, a lot sure. of people have, have, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, but yeah, the invention of this form, like it, it touched a nerve, like almost immediately. And, and why I think it touched the nerve is because of this, this this resonance this psychic resonance so so yeah because i think even i mean comic books are maybe the most well yeah. not maybe the most but i mean a pretty good who cares example. say the most yeah. <laughs> i was just thinking that or like the you know obviously television programs as you kind of pointed out follow that mo- mode as well radio serials is it like film like film serials for a while you know like pearls of pauline uh buck rogers that's you know um that's that's how we got Star Wars is because of, you know, films like that. Um, those those early serial films and, you know, in Westerns, of course. But um, yeah, just like, yeah, huge, huge fan. And, you know, there's so there's just so many things to talk about here. Like there's the you know, we can take the rest of this conversation wherever you want, wherever you want to go. It Like so we can talk about like, you know, uh, my goodness, like the like the textual desire. Right. Is, is in this and also the like. Lacan with the the whole if you subscribe to to Lacan or the psychoanalytic idea of desire like then what you know is that desire is it's impossible to to satisfy it's not like the um we just talked about this in previous episode is that like um that experience of buyer's remorse okay that is a confrontation with the like 
with your impossible desire. That is, and um, your dissatisfaction is how the drive enjoys in psychoanalysis as well. Okay, so they're 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 locked into that dialectic where your you know your desire is 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 impossible to satisfy, and this unsatisfaction, this dissatisfaction, the drive enjoys, and then it's it's in this like this sort of like. Uh, this this feedback loop is one way to think about it. Um, and so this comes up with endings all the time, right? With with endings of, of popular uh, shows or uh, or film series or like, my God, like, so the new Star Wars can come out this week and like the, the toy chucking out of the crib that happened with the last movie, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just all over the internet. I mean, even now, you know, so, um, so there's that. Uh, there's also, um, we're talking about, um, one way that a lot of different people like to understand like capitalist production as being serial. Uh, this more or less starts with um, Jean-Paul Sartre where, um, where he and his recommendation is we need to get out of seriality. Seriality dominates our entire life. It's a structure that, that, that um, keeps us from having a meaningful connection to each other. So what he, um, I, I think this is probably fair to say is that um, if where I'm, where I would argue about like the gaps that seriality um, installs, or like these are these are p- potential points for rupture. I think he would argue that th- either that the gaps keep us apart, or that the seriality eliminates them, and uh, and, and we just have this like, um, I mean, he does kind of say this, this like this like endless like kind of like replication of the same, and 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 there's no no chance for like a meaningful collectivity. Uh, the group infusion, he calls it. So we need to get out of here. So there's that. There's also other like, um, uh, oh, do you said you said sociology? You you worked uh-huh. in yeah. James Whipple's is the name of this guy. He's a sociologist. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he he has this book called yeah he has this book called the soap opera paradigm. And when he talks about and it's all about how the serial form just goes into different uh, industries and and um, like his example is like is television, but um that he takes and it just it's like um i don't know it's like a like a you know what i think if so this will be good for you it's i I think he 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 thinks of um seriality in a rhizomatic way and it's it's flattening and it just spreads and it just like you know it's like urban sprawl and um and it's just like we are powerless to do anything about it. Jonathan Crary kind of talks about the same thing in twenty four seven. So there's like a th- so that's a thread too. That, you know this like capitalist yeah. thing. I think that's uh, in, well yeah. that kind of just brought up an idea of. For me personally, it's mm-hmm. when it, in comic books in particular mm. is I enjoy the one shot sort of cohesive thing yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to I don't know when you're talking about um, soap operas. It's it's similar to like the big kind of cape comic books. It's like there's never there's never mm-hmm. any end. It's a in, yeah. infinite seriality to it. There is no there is no yes. closure. There is no wrap up. It's just re keeping that form going on and on and on. Well, yeah, yeah, no, this it's soap opera is really fascinating. So like I, I, whenever I talk about soap operas, like in class or just with other people, like I never want to denigrate the form because this is kind of fascinating because they have to, um, the the way that it's written is that like you have to imagine that your audience is not keeping up with every single episode. So this is what leads to what people always make fun of soap operas for, which is like a twin brother shows up or unexpectedly someone's in a coma, somebody dies, you know, or there's a land deed. And, and it's, and basically there's one central 
surprising thing that happens. And then the rest of the season is like a painstaking dealing with the consequences. So like the whole, so it's, you, you might say that like, um, like soap opera setup is like to have like a one cause, like there's just a single causality. And then the rest of it is just effect because if you don't keep up with it for two uh, three weeks and you can come back to the soap opera and it's like, Oh yeah, they're still dealing with how, you know, Bill's uh, cousin showed up with the land deed to take the farm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you're, you're basically caught up still. Right. And so th- that's sort of like, so that's like a, an, an interesting, uh, formal thing that, that, uh, that soap operas do, but it, but it, it is, it's interesting that you said infinite, right. With the serial the li- library of Congress has a definition for the serial that I think is so great. And it's, they're talking about, journals and news publications but it's um but their definition is that uh, a serial is expected to continue indefinitely and that is a feeling that i think is also what leads to this like issue with endings and like you know again like i said part of the reason why i bring psychoanalysis to this is because like you know freud is, is tries to understand what do i do about the end of the session you know like does is this just it like people just have to suffer and Lacan tries to come up with a solution to it, which is um, he has these things called variable length sessions or the short session, or this is my favorite one, the punctuated session, because I think it gets the idea, which is like the second the analyzin says something that is like that exceeds them, right? That it's just like a little bit like you said something more than you meant to. Lacan would stop. You got to go. <laughs> and, and, and now and now you have to have the you have the, the, the revelation elsewhere. Like you got, you got to go do that. That's, this was his idea to speed up analysis. And, but the international psychoanalysis like association, they kicked him out because of this, because they thought he was taking, it was like a money grubbing thing. They, they, I mean, and it's also like, you know, not inaccurate. I mean, it's still true. Like he's taking the same amount of money for doing less work. You could see it. But I think that the theoretical, I, I suppose I, I would be sympathetic to the theoretical thing that he was trying to do. <laughs> um, so, but, but cause he's trying to solve this problem that Freud identified in 1895, right at the beginning it was, what do we do about endings? And if the ending is just the hour, then it means nothing. So there has to be, there has to be something else that, that, that ends it. Something that comes from the, the analyze in themselves. Okay. And then your job as the analyst is to be aware of it and then you stop it and then they go, they have, they, they think through more productively than as Freud was talking about where you're just like, I didn't get to finish telling that story. I, I just want to tell that story. Like, I just want, you know, like what you're just troubled with this like meaningless thing. Like after the session, you're not locked into something meaningful. You're not working through like, you know, again, an important psychical discovery. You're just like that ended and it was so unsatisfying and people feel like, you know, again, end of game of Thrones, you get that kind of thing. To that end, how, how do you, or what's the impact of, do you extend this to sort of the weight in between like seasons, like as Game of Thrones is a great example, right? It's like we knew there was going to be, you know, mm-hmm. there was that gap, mm-hmm. obviously for much longer than just that sort of sequence of the the season or sequence itself. But there's mm-hmm. a, like there's a an even bigger gap, you know what I mean? It's like these small gaps, but then there's a bigger yeah. gap in between the smaller gaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the thing. So that's um, so that's the kind of that comes up the most with Netflix. Okay, because they put whole seasons out. Right. And so they're so it's um, so uh, their their form is almost more, you know, I I think this is so funny is that 
a lot of like producers of Netflix shows or like Hulu shows or Amazon, even uh, David Benioff and uh, DB Wise, the, the Game of Thrones guys, they are, they talk about their shows as like, well, you know, we really think of it as like a five hour movie. You know, it's like, well, it's like an 83 hour movie, 17 hour movie. You know, that's like that. That's how that's how like producers talk about this stuff. And it's it's funny because the most popular movies are like what old TV used to be. Like the Marvel movies, they they tell a single contained story, and they like most of them, except for like you know Endgame, where we we got to the end of a thirty film like arc or whatever. But um, most of them nudge a larger story ahead like a little bit. But they right. sell they tell a self contained story that used to be television. That yeah, used to be that was, yeah. That's and that, it, I think that yeah. There's a good parallel there for sure. Yeah, and so now these now these like you know these streaming series are like long movies. And TV and sorry, and a film is like, you know, what kind of like what TV used to be. So I, I find that kind of interesting. But OK, so back to the question about gaps, right? The um, the Netflix gaps uh, are you you have like, you know, 10 episodes in the case of like Stranger Things or something like that. And then you have like this much longer wait for like the next the next thing. And um, what's really tempting and, and really great for me, and this is why, like, I don't completely go down the like seriality is pro capitalist. Like where I don't go down that, that path because I think that there are there are points for rupture in the structure. Netflix's whole thing is supported by the idea that it's doing not traditional television. Well, you don't have to wait. You don't have to be at home at eight o'clock for the show you want to watch. And then if you're home late, you missed it. And I mean, you know, and this is how TV used to be. You missed it one time and then you had to wait for it to be in syndication to ever see it again. Right. And then DVR happens or and then TV on DVD before that. And that kind of changes things. Um, so what Netflix thinks it's doing is it's getting out of the traditional problems of TV. They even wrote this in like a press release before um, House of Cards first season came out like in 2013 that um, they're giving people control. And it's, again, it's this like, it's this like neoliberal kind of thing, right? It's just like, like choice and, 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 and all this, right? Like, Oh, you have all that you can do whatever you want. And it's all, it's false. You have the amount of choices that you're given. And like, if they're not good, then like, what's the point, you know, right. That's the whole healthcare thing. Um, and why that, that rhetoric is, you know, damaging and awful, but like, you know, we're talking smaller stakes that I would argue are bigger, uh, with, with TV. So, um, but, so Netflix uh, gives you these things and it thinks it's giving you control and it's giving it's it's trying to get away from this problem of like cliffhangers and having to wait. And, you you know, it's it's your finally it's you know, they don't call they don't call the, the people Netflix viewers. They call them users. OK, so it's a Netflix user uh, and, and it's all user controlled and, and user created uh, like and, 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 and that's where you get your recommendations. And it's all it's all about you. And yet. This is to me, it's all of a flight from gaps. OK. But it makes them bigger. OK, because you have you can you can you can binge the thing the second it comes out and you have a absolutely temporarily, physically speaking, a much longer wait. But I don't that. that so that's that's in, you know, TV release. What I, what I'm really interested in, though, is the gaps that arise even when they try to erase them, you know, like everyone talks about the like, oh, you can get rid of the, um, you know, the the intro sequence for a TV series that makes it more present to me, because when I'm just watching a bunch of episodes of the show in a row, I just like blank out about the intro. But when I have the button ask me if I want to skip it, then I'm aware that it's there 
and then I hit it. And again, okay, <laughs> that's a minimal gap, but there's still a gap, you know? Um, and we have other issues uh, or, or other things come up too, which is that like, because the way that they've sold their whole programming is like, we don't do traditional TV. We, we, we do, we do, we, uh, you know, you're, you're in control. Like, like there's no downfalls here. So we don't do things like cliffhangers or if we do, you can just go to the next episode. Right. Uh, Stranger Things season two this is like totally fascinating to me, has an episode that is like universally reviled. It's called The Lost Sister. It's like this. It fills in the gaps mm-hmm, <laughs> of of one of the characters story throughout the season. And people hate it like it, it break because it breaks this like narrative tension from the preceding episode. And earlier in the season, they had a character. um basically like attacked by I don't know if, if people have don't watch the show basically like attacked by like a demon and then that's where that's where the episode ends and then the next episode picks up exactly on that other side and you could watch it for like five more minutes and then like as sort of as Freud told us we can be done with it to be continued right we, we just have to be done with it but with this later episode you have to watch the whole episode you there's no there there's there's no resolution of the tension from the previous episode. We've caught cut to a different story entirely. And what we have here is a gap that is actually filled with content. People like if you like the re- user reviews on IMDb about this episode are hilarious. You should totally read them because they're all about how like I you know Netflix shouldn't do this. This is like, you know, this this is the downfall of traditional TV. I'm going to cancel my account if they keep doing stuff like this. It's ill-advised. Like this is why we did we cut cords in the first place. I can't believe it. so it's all these people who are upset cuz they bought into the Netflix rhetoric, right? And what happens is that like actually Netflix finds a way to do like, you know, traditional TV in this streaming model that people like aren't even aware of as a possibility is you have an entire episode. It's full of stuff. It's interesting on its own, but it's basically a gap because it like intercedes into this story that people are actually interested in. And this is the thing that I think we're seeing with streaming is that it's finding new ways to do old things. Like so Disney Plus and Apple Plus come out recently and they have all these shows. They want people to watch them. And what are they, what is their what is their problem? They're like, well, we don't want, you know, we want people to stay after the free trial, right? So what do we do with The Mandalorian? We don't want to put every episode out at once. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, I have an idea. We'll put it out weekly. It's like, oh, that's fucking brilliant. Oh, why did we not think about that for like 100 friggin' years of television? You know, like so, but it's, but I think it's in, you know, it, 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 um, so it's so on on that hand, it's like stupid a little bit that like what 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 are these like new streaming platforms doing with all their their shows is they're they're putting them out like TV used to be and the whole thing started with Netflix saying we're not like TV and you know what I mean so it's the a little circle bit stupid. is now complete yeah the circle is now yeah the the, pro, the prophecy has completed exactly. but but it is but I but it's funny it it does to me it actually is Netflix I'm sorry not Netflix uh, it actually is Apple uh, and Disney solving the Netflix problem and like Netflix um, they're trying to find their like ways around this. The, the problem that they've created for themselves too, is that like what, when we don't have like a big show that has just come out, like people aren't on the platform as much. And so the, it, it's kind of, it, it's almost like, um, as I said at the beginning, like there's, you can't get away from this gap. Like this, like Netflix's attempt to get rid of it made it more present. And it made it again, actually, weirdly, more viable. 
for these other these other platforms. And so that's like a business thing. But to me, um, it it confirms this like this irascibility of the gap that is not just a narrative formalism. It is not just an audience practice. It is not just this thing that we can get rid of. It is this thing that is like intrinsic to the form. And, you know, to my mind, that which causes, um, uh, you know, what? there's a great word from, I'll give you another German scholar uh, who I, I don't know nearly as much about as Hegel, but I, I know this term, uh, Fichte. Do you know Fichte? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds you know Fichte? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he has this term called, um, it's translated into English as Anstoss. Well, that's not, that's in German, but like, that's how it comes out. And what it means is the, um, obstacle and the impetus at the same time. So the, the gap, the, the serial gap is the obstacle for storytelling for, uh, you know, for Sartre, it's the obstacle for, you know, a meaningful uh, social collective. Okay. For uh, it's for Freud and Lacan, it's the obstacle of like a session. Okay. For how do we, how do we end psychoanalysis? How do we like, what do we, what do we do about this? It's a total obstacle, but it is the impetus for the thing existing like in the first place. Like, like, you know, why does psycho- psychoanalysis work? Well, because there's time because, because there is, because the, there is this gap because it is not this like, episodic like you know you go in for like 10 hours and then you're done it's like no it's like you submit to this idea that it's going to be a process okay that's why it works but the it makes it a problem you know um and and this is the same thing with serial storytelling is that like okay so we've i've decided to give you my time okay game of thrones any other show and what i expect is a kind of you know you kind of defer this like payoff to the end and the end isn't completely satisfying because of course it isn't, you know, and then, you know, people have basically people's reaction is, oh, there is no God then, you know, <laughs> and that to me, that is, was, this is the conclusion that Lacan comes, comes to is that the end of analysis is when you recognize that there is no big other, there is no point, there is no guarantee outside of uh, you to, that to, to, to that will confirm your consistency, the consistency of your uh, subjectivity. And all of that, I think, is wrapped up in, uh, in in this like serial fandom like phenomena. I'm interested, I think maybe most interested, in that comparison between how enjoyment and desire function mm-hmm. with that model of the serial, like the HBO model versus mm-hmm. the Netflix model. Yeah. Right? Because I think in some, like in some capacity even though like you're conscious, like to go second <laughs> because I have psychoanalytic brain, the enjoyment yeah. is not in, or there's enjoyment in that, in the waiting itself. Mm-hmm. Like, that's part of the subconscious or unconscious enjoyment is that gap. Right. Well, and it's, I'm going to push it further. And I think you're here with, you're right here with me. You know what the, you know what the real enjoyment is? The real enjoyment is in dissatisfying finales, right? That's the real enjoyment. The real enjoyment is the bad episode. The real enjoyment is the, is disappointment. And I think that it is because, and I will make this, uh, this, this will be my sort of philosophical claim on this. When you are disappointed is when you can recognize that you have had like your expectations raised. And to, to when you, I, to me, I think like when you're not, 
in this is in the realm of serial narrative, when you're not disappointed by something, it means you never had your expectations for that thing raised for you, which means that that thing did nothing for you. Um, it just, it left you the same as you found it. But when you are disappointed, it is an index of how that thing, that serial thing got its hooks in you. And that's, that's, that's to me, the, again, the psychical thing with seriality is that it acts on us and it like, like in us, like it gets under our skin. And I think this is part of the reason why like Sartre wants to reject it is, and I think that, that he, and everybody who, who does write about seriality as this awful thing that we need to abandon politically, socially, like whatever, or Netflix narratively, like they, they try to, is they see that like it, it does cause tension. It causes like a, a kind of um, trauma, certainly not like war trauma, but it causes, a, a, again, like, uh, like as Freud said, like suffering in the, in the subject because, uh, because of this. Um, this like closure coming too soon or this like end that is like dissatisfying. And, and this I think is um, these are the elements of, of seriality that like are like I find like really endlessly fascinating. And uh, like, yeah, like you you submit you basically submit yourself to the like, OK, I'm going to be taken on a ride, uh, you know, and and then you get to, you get to this destination. And you're like, this wasn't where I wanted to go. And it's like, no, 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 no. You had that. That's not. You know, that's not possible, you know, like so. But the, you have to be for it to work. You have to I think you have to have that that reaction. Like you can't be like the cynical Internet critic who like everything is a perpetual B minus and like, you know, nothing is ever interesting or, you know, you you never really got into something. I don't think like you have to you have to submit yourself to the serial thing. And then you have to see that, again, the the index to which you are disappointed or frustrated or enraged is the like proportional to what that thing did for you and how it got again, like, like in you. And it's like, you know, uh, satisfaction is a, is a, a great lure, but I, I think that uh, dissatisfaction is uh, much more satisfying. That's, re- that's really funny. Um, so a co- couple of things that come to mind. One is, yeah. In terms of endings, like, is it even is it even possible to have a satisfying ending? Right, I think that okay. sort of almost goes back to your point about sort of the uh, the big other, right? Mm. Well, I have okay. I have this is I've, I've yet to I've yet to see this on on TV, but this is I, I've thought about this before, and this would be my recommendation to any um, TV show runner who is listening to this podcast. <laughs> they all do, of course. And they they all do. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I mean, you're this is big in Hollywood. I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, this is my suggestion is that I, I, I think again, I haven't seen this on, on TV yet. I haven't seen anybody really try it and I don't know how you'd do it, but I think I would like to see a show where the ending actually occurred. Like, let's just say it's like a four season show. The ending actually occurred in the middle of season three, but because of like creative cutting, you weren't aware of it. Uh-huh. Like you, like, you know, the, the, you know, a classic example of, of this kind of, um, uh, how time and space can be like sort of manipulated where you think you're watching one thing, right? It's the end of Silence of the Lambs where, you know, you think the FBI have found okay. Buffalo Bill, yeah. but but actually it's Clarice Starling knocking on his door, right? Okay. So I, I think there's, there. I just, I believe that there is a way to do that. Like you can um, make, you can represent the show in, in a way like visually where it looks like, uh, I don't know, the same place or the same time as other stuff that's going on, but actually it's like, you know, maybe like years later. Um, and 
then, so this would be the great thing, right? Is then for the final episode, you just run that episode that people have already seen (laughs) and they would have to be making connections that, you know, they didn't realize because they didn't understand the, the, the placement of where that thing was. And that, that I think, that I think would get around it in a way because it, it, um, the thing with uh, for for endings for for shows or or even for for seasons or, or something is that like um, people always feel a sense of symbolic castration. They always feel a sense of I was denied something that was never on offer. Right? It's just like like that's kind of to me the whole the whole Game of Thrones thing is that like there is in the ether a better version of of season eight, and I didn't that get that. Bad, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so and and I and I want to have that. So um, I think that, you know, this thing where you you actually already saw the ending, but you didn't realize it. And then you did. Get, I think it gets good way to start. It gets around. Yeah. That. yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so that that's 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 my my one suggestion. Although the problem is it does. It would lead to people being like, oh, it's so brilliant. These are the best producers. It would lead to people thinking that, you know, right. well, there is a big other and it's, you know, and that that. So so that's why that's why I claim that the, um, you know, the disappointing ending is the like theoretically much. It's much more satisfying and it's much better uh, because it like as as you know, I think as, as Lacan uh, eventually came to for thinking about like, what do you how do you end analysis? Well, you get to the end analysis where you're like, I there's nothing more for me in the, from from this person like this not only does this person this person does not hold the keys to me understanding me and also i don't either and uh you know this is where we get to like ideas like enjoying your symptom and stuff like that so um yeah oh yeah you have a question <laughs> well i was going to ask or at least yeah. pose this to you because i think sure. for me the, no this is conscious though and i think this is the distinction i don't know if you're getting at this in the same way is that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The unsatisfied, like literally, consciously, the unsatisfying Mm -hmm. ending is Mm -hmm. more satisfying for me. And I'll give you an example of a film that kind of portrays that really well. Would be, I mean, I guess The Sopranos ending is Mm -hmm. sort of along Mm -hmm. those lines, but Mm -hmm. um, the best one that I can think of is No Country for Old Men. Sure. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, there's no closure. There's no, you know what I mean? And, And those at least consciously for me, I will often rather be, or I'm more drawn to that than something where everything wraps up nicely with a, with a yeah. little bow. Right. But that's a, that's different because that's more of a conscious. So is it well, that, uh, is it the reverse? <laughs> it's no, I, I want the, <laughs> what I really desire is the closure yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for everything yeah, yeah. to wrap up. But since I'm denied that, I don't, <laughs> no, 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 no. I think you're, yeah, I totally do. I think that that's probably, <clears throat> I think, um, well, as I we was saying pre-show, um, yeah, the, the thing, the thing that you say that you, the thing that you say that you like is like, what would Freud say? Oh, you consciously said that? No, it's the opposite. So like, I think it probably, that's probably true. But, um, he also said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So, you know, <laughs> so we, we, it, it, you, it risks making the whole thing hysterical if like everything is the opposite of what it actually right. is. So there are things that just need to be. <laughs> um, so, but I think no country is a really great example. And it's a really great example of the quilting point that we started talking about is that, um, <clears throat> that, you know, that film where, I don't know, where a regular, I mean, it's obviously inspired by, by Westerns. Uh, so like where a regular Western, or even a noir, because, you know, there are a lot of noir tendencies in Coen Brothers movies uh, where, 
you know, a regular film like that would end with like the criminal being apprehended or getting away or something like that. Um, this ends with the, uh, <clears throat> ironically, the telling of, of a dream, right? Or yeah. Is that the book that I'm, maybe I'm conflating. No, no, no. You're totally right. He is telling a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's telling a dream, uh, which is great. <laughs> wonderfully psychoanalytic. Um, but what he's, what he's really, what he's really talking about, what he's really, he's being confronted with the thing that we see formally throughout the entire film, which is that he and Anton Chigurh op, uh, occupy ideological sides that can, they're so opposed to each other that like they cannot even be in the same frame. You know, they, they never appear in the same frame in the entire film, you know, barely even the same scene. Um, and that, so that ending that you, and I mean, I had to like, I think I had to watch that film like a couple times to, to be like, uh, what, what is this ending doing for the rest of the film? But that's Zizek's idea, which is whatever the ending is, you're going to, now it doesn't account for like, I think that idea doesn't account for quality, but we're, we'll just say it's a good film. Whatever the ending is of the, of like something of, of like, uh, something of quality, you're going to go back from it and be like, this, this makes, this makes sense. This actually, this pulls things together because, um, the, I think that this is part partially in the belief that like, you know, endings are always these uh, meaning making signifiers and, you know, they maybe what uh, no country does. And maybe this is why it's so satisfying is that like it is in your face with the idea that like the ending does not have to be, it doesn't have to have anything meaningful in it. You know, it, it's, it's the ending. And because it's the ending, that's going to be the thing that sews everything up. So like the, like the whole film builds up to, Oh, you want, what do you want? Like the, 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 the wire kind of does the same thing. You want the, the shootout at okay corral. No, sorry. Your favorite character is going to be killed by a kid ordering a pack of reports. <laughs> like that's what, that's what, so you don't, you don't get that. You don't get that thing. You have this confrontation with the impossibility of desire. And I think that in, uh, in no country, it's also like an impossibility of this, like, um, uh, this ethics that, that, um, um, Tom Lee Jones's character like believes in, uh, it believes in his ethical p- position and he comes and he comes face to face with the impossibility of that, of that, uh, ethical desire, uh, I think. And anyway, all wrapped up in this, like the ending doesn't say that it doesn't say that literally right. it, he recounts a dream for his wife and then it's a cut to black and you hear music for the first time. Right. You know, and like, cause there wasn't a music in the rest of the film, which is why I thought it was so funny that there was a soundtrack to that movie <laughs> released afterwards. Cause it wasn't like Fargo where, you know, the music did so much to that film, but um, yeah. So I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that that's, that's, that's what, what I, what I take from that is that um, the yes. And, and I actually, I largely agree uh, too with the premise that like the ending that like kind of wags in your face, like, Hey, we're wrapping up all the threads. That's bad. Like, you know, like, and, and I, I feel like I see this on the internet, like all the time where people say that they want that unless, except when they get it, which is kind of like the eighth season of game of Thrones. Right. And then they get that and they're like, no, we don't want that. We want something else. And it's just this, like, um, that's, uh, a kind of a, a hysterical position that I think is again, that is an opportunity to um, be confronted with the impossibility of your desire and to embrace 
dissatisfaction and also the like the again the inability of 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 the big other to make sense of anything for you i think that like you know because it's a popular and pervasive form and because people like so many people get to engage with it like coming from so many different backgrounds like i think tv of all art forms sneaks into people's lives no matter what i would say you know more than more than film even and to look at the structure in this way I think um, it has the, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm a true believer, so I think that it has uh, the potential to be revelatory or, or at least uh, push us uh, in, you know, into different avenues of, uh, of thought. This might be a good time to ask. Uh, so you mentioned in our kind of correspondence um, that you've been mm-hmm. kind of paying attention to the new Watchmen show. Have you, oh, yeah. have you seen the finale yet to that? I have. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Cause you made a point of, the that narratively they were doing something interesting in mm. that there's sort of a folk like whenever they had the episodes where they would focus on a specific character intimately mm. in their little narrative how that was something you don't see all of that like that regularly i guess mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah i mean i i mean i think that show is great and i think that 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 ended and if that is indeed because it's unclear if there's going to be a second season because the show was greenlit before the HBO takeover by this yeah, AT&T, um, I think, or whatever. Yeah. Owns they, AT&T. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And they want to make it more like Netflix. They want to do more quantity and less quality, which sure. I hope. Why not? not? I'm so, I'm, I'm will be so mad. <laughs> yeah. I love oh, absolutely. Everything that HBO does like that. It's well, the one because, network I, mean, I want really, honestly, it's true. I mean, Damon Lindelof, who is the showrunner for, um, Watchmen, leftovers lost um i mean he had this i think this really good line about that and i think that he was uh speaking um it was indirectly aimed at the new bosses at hbo but i think that, anyway he said that um <clears throat> with streaming he doesn't know what a netflix show is like what is it like but he can tell you what an hbo show is and what it what you know and 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 there is an expectation of, um, I don't know, there's an expectation of quality, both in like, like HBO shows have like a look, you know, like you could, if you hadn't seen them before, but I gave you just short shots, you, I'm, I like a police lineup of like, where did this come from? I think you could absolutely pick out which ones came from HBO. So, um, from a visual aesthetic standpoint, um, I, yeah, like he's hundred percent correct about that, but it's also like. So one of the things I've seen online, like, is that like, well, you know, actually that's a benefit because Netflix is so many things and that's the, and it's like, no, like if the best thing that you can say about your thing is that it can do everything, then like to me, it kind of does nothing. And I kind of think that's the problem that Netflix is running into is that like when it has shows that people care about coming out, then it's great. But when it doesn't, you're, you're just like, what does it do? Cause it doesn't. You know, because this was their their whole plan was to make their own content. So um, and not to have the office forever. So it, it's not so Netflix is not like a good repository of like an archive of TV history. It really doesn't like it doesn't have that much stuff, not nearly as much as, you know, bef- uh, well, maybe this isn't factually true, but it felt like it had more other shows before they started making their own content. Because, again, that's a whole point. They don't want to be beholden to other people and copyright and that kind of thing. So, um, but that they run into a problem where, you know, 
there's no like reasonable expectation for like what it, what is a what is a Netflix show, and there absolutely is for you know uh, there absolutely is for for HBO. Um, so and anyway, so uh, hopefully you know that that continues um, that they re-embrace the it's not TV it's HBO thing because that's been their thing forever. And even even before they had their own content, they were the um, they were like one of the only networks that were really hard to pirate. Like in the eighties, where there was like pirate a TV yeah, stations, descrambling de- or whatever with the yeah. satellites. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's well, it's just like kind of basically the plot of Videodrome too. Is like these like you know these channels that you get from like wherever, and you know we we don't have that kind of like pirate. Well, it's on it's on the internet is is pirate TV, but we don't have that like the pirate broadcast. I would say we have pirate narrowcast. Um, so, um, yeah, okay. So the question about uh, yeah, the question about Watchmen, like uh, the. The thing that's like, like for one, uh, just at the level of the text, I mean, what it does that's like really significant is that like it, it, it narrativizes the erasure of uh, African-American history. Like, in it, and I've, I've, I have not seen that in a show where that wasn't the point of the show to, 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 to do that. Like, like this um, is ostensibly about um, superheroes and ethics and, and truth and, 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 um, and, and, you know, racism and, and whatever, but it's, it's about so many different, about so many different things. It's, it maybe even it's about narrative too, like Ozymandias, his narrative, right? He saved the world by killing 3 million people, you know? So he believes his narrative, he is immune from prosecution and guilt because of that, because, because the ends justify the means right that's that's sort of his narrative and there's a lot of different competing narratives in the in the show you know and i think the show does such a great job of staging um like (laughs) the like internet debates that i just like make my blood boil like um you know like well uh he was just expressing an opinion racism does not deserve the dignity of an opinion it is you know i mean like you know it's and they did such a great job uh, in that show uh, where the plan was if they put cops and bad guys in masks, then anyone is, is a mask is like um, they occupy the same space like morally. So it creates a moral relativism. And that's exactly like so the show literalizes what politically the right tries to do today, which is like was just opinions. We we're just asking questions. You know, it was just like. Oh yeah, so you know, you think uh you think that that uh, everyone has uh, healthcare should be a right? It's just like, well, I mean, you know, we think that you know you need to earn it. And that's just an opinion. And it's like, no, but that earn thing like it actually like it props up like, you know, uh it props up all kinds of systemic abuses and you know, but to to put them as though they're just opposite poles but like again, co-equal in a political environment far more benefits uh, one side, the side that wants to take rights away from you, than the one that want, wants to give them. And so, anyway, so the show literalizes this contemporary political struggle through this idea of masks and like masking. Like, if you put, if you can mask truth, then what's truth? Then there isn't one. And then, and and if you have this, um, you know, that's that's the whole thing with um, this whole thing with alternative facts, right? Like, if we, if you can just say, um. I wouldn't say like objective truth, but like like a, a procedure to um, get at truth. If we can get rid of that, then all kinds of views end up seeming to occupy the same space. So um, 
I think the show stages that. Now, um, one thing I think is is uh, un- that is kind of unfortunate in this is that, and I haven't, I haven't seen this commentary uh, in too many places, but like <clears throat> someone like um, Leotard, who we talked about a little bit before, and this idea of like rejecting grand narratives is, or, or like, and uh, like the ideas that uh, uh, the government cares about you, we need to reject this. We need to reject all like previous kinds of like, big explanatory narratives which like yes totally but what it ended up doing and there's a thread in this that even goes back to Nietzsche there are no facts only interpretations well if there are no facts and only interpretations then Trump's crowd size was bigger than Obama's even though it wasn't you know what I mean like like there's there's a um this this uh, acceptance of a kind of um philosophical like like or I should say theoretical relativism like it, it opens the the floodgates for um yeah procedures of truth to like all seem equal no matter no matter what they are you know yeah and 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 I think um unfortunately I think some of the roots of this are in some postmodern thought I don't want to tar and feather everybody and we're not here to we, we aren't here to talk about that but I think that like that um it's not, maybe not even it's not even like leotard's fault but like if the way it it could be a sort of a reception one, like a like a, a fault on not of not of the author, but of the audience. But I mean, I think if we're going to be psychoanalytic about it, then you would say that that fault is in the text itself, where I think people saw, you know, like people read something like um, uh, Baudrillard, the um, the Gulf War did not take place, and it's like, yeah, you know, nothing's true on TV, and it's like that's not the point. And that's a dangerous idea. <laughs> like, like that's a proto-fascist idea. Uh, if if that's if that's the the point from it. And and so this is where like I think, and this is sort of a wider conversation than when we started with. This is where uh, I think like theory uh, needs to be at its uh, sharpest, to um, because it's not the same thing as like um, there are these two there are these two subreddits. Okay, on Reddit that I think are like breeding grounds for um, moral relativism. And it's uh, the Empire did nothing wrong and Thanos did nothing wrong. And I think it's like I think on some level it's like kind of fun. Like if you think like, you know, from the perspective of the Empire, um, Luke Skywalker is a terrorist from uh, the country and he's trying to take down like a, 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 a fully functioning like bureaucratic government. And it's like, yeah, no, that you that that is that has got to be rejected as a way of understanding that film, like, and, 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 you know, like actually, you know, Thanos is just trying to restore balance. It's just like, Oh, okay. So then like any genocide is that then is it, you know, like, like it's just, it's not that many steps from that sort of idea to that, to that. And I think, um, anyway, how we got here is I think Watchmen is one of these few popular things that is on the vanguard of actually like narrativizing and demonstrating the problem with that, with that idea and that sort of belief system. So yes. Um, outside of serial concerns nice. or, or whatever, but I think that's like the really good theoretical work that that show is doing or did if it's, if it's over, but yeah. So did you, did you watch the leftovers as well? Cause I, that <laughs> honestly is one of my absolute oh, dude, favorites yeah. of all time. Oh, it's unbelievable. So the first season is a little dour, right? And, oh, I, and I love dour though. You like, okay, well, that's <laughs> I'm, fine. I'm a, I'm a dour guy. You're, okay. you're here for dour. No, no, <laughs> we, we talked about this. Yeah. It's a little dour. I think some of it's a little, like a little bombastic in the, in the, in the theming at times. And I think, I mean, Dame Lindelof 
even said this too. And then I think like they got a season two and man, season two and three are such perfect examples of what happens when uh, people working on a show are like, fuck it. Let's just, let's do, let's do what we want. We're going to have characters smoking weed on a trampoline with Wu-Tang playing. <laughs> We're going to do that. That's what's going to happen. And I think that it, it, it um, you know, that, that shows a really great example of like, uh, very few shows are willing to blow up their premise. And I think that show did it two times by moving from the end of the first season to the second one, to moving to miracle. It changes the premise of the show because now we, we move from a place where everybody lost someone. We're now going to a place where nobody lost anybody. Right. Um, in the, in the sudden departure. And that's, which happened on my birthday, by the way. <laughs> nice. Also the battle of Hastings. So two, two important <laughs> historical events. Um, so, so, so that, that's the first premise. And then the second one about Kevin, right. Being like this deathless God who is immune is, and, and exploring that idea. And then what happens on, um, I'm forgetting the character who's his wife. What is her name? Oh, Nora. Nora. Thank you so much. And then Nora exploring the like, um, actually kind of like the, the reversal of the, of the entire situation where there is a world where 99% of people went missing and not 1% or whatever, or 3% or 97, whatever it is. Um, and I think that that man, like, um, most like, like most television is in a careful dialectic of pushing characters as far as they can while still maintaining the premise of the show. Like there's no, there's no version of breaking bad where Walt's not in Albuquerque and and doing selling meth you know and and doing like that that right. it doesn't that that would that, that, that now I'm not, that's not me slamming that show for being unimaginative or whatever but like it's it hues as much as it like it changes Walt from this like underdog like beta cuck or whatever like how he starts in the beginning to the most like the worst villain in like any fiction like that's like it's great how that happens um but that's a, that's sort of like a um it's it maintains the same premise. It even even in the first episode, which is um, this guy's um, brother-in-law is a DA, DEA agent, and when is he going to find out? That that premise was with the show up until six episodes from the end, you know, um, and or, or eight episodes, whatever it was. And so I think that's part of what makes like the leftovers like really distinct is that like it blows up like relationships, character dynamics, places. Um, and the whole, the whole premise to do, to do something new. It's like a perfect example of the, um, uh, I, I think it's a perfect example of like the, uh, the, what Hegel talks about spirit is that, you know, spirit only rises to its truth when it has been utterly ripped asunder. Like that's, that's like what the, what the leftovers does is it rips the premise of the show asunder, like every season. And then that's, and they all got like progressively better. And that's like, that's a great ending that show. You know, um, and the reason why it's like it's great is because, you know what, it could be a lie. And if it's a lie, it's profoundly dissatisfying, <laughs> you know, but it's but then you get into this thing where it's like the important thing is that Kevin believes Nora. Right. So, you, you know, what you're doing is you're subjecting yourself not to what do the writers want or what or what do I want? You're like you're subjecting yourself to the diegetic rules of the thing. You're giving yourself over to the 
the logic of the fiction. And I think that's like the most, that's the most important thing. Like, like, look, I, you know, if you and I are ever in the same movie theater together, you'll probably see me cry at a movie trailer. Cause I just like, I just, I weep at these things like all the time. But if you see me weeping at a movie and you lean over and you're like, yo, bro, those are actors. <laughs> like that's fake. That didn't happen. It's not a documentary. Uh, it's not, they will not grow old or, you know, whatever that world war one film, you know, it's like, you're literally right, but you're wrong. You know what I mean? And maybe I'm having like an excessive emotional, but like being like, you have to throw yourself. This is what I said earlier about like, um, you have to throw yourself into the analytic situation up until the point that you, you're not in it anymore. You know, you have to, you have to submit to the, uh, I think to the logic of this thing until such time that you like emerge out of it and that, you know, you don't have the answers. Nobody else has the answers. Um, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy that sort of, um, it's almost, I don't know, maybe there's, there's a kind of like, a like, like enjoying that sort of like the, like the, the chaos of that, of that situation. Is that, a is bit. that not giving ground to your desire? In a, in a sense, <laughs> is, is, uh, yeah, is, is, is <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's not giving, it's not giving ground. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not giving ground. Right. No, that's exactly right. That, yeah. The, the, yeah, it, it's the total, it's the total embrace of that. I think of, of that position. Let the mystery be. Yeah. That, that's a very good. <laughs> now that I think yeah. about that. Yeah. It's pretty good. I mean, and then, you know, I mean, just again, from to, to, to be like a, just a, uh, narrative formalist about it. Like when they change the theme song for every episode, right. the third season, and the especially cutouts, the, the, the people are missing the gaps there. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. It's so good. And then the Mark, the Marklin Baker things, best acting Marklin Baker's oh, ever yeah, done so his good. entire life. Yeah. And the perfect strangers thing. Oh. Yeah, that's the best. That shows the, that, that is the best. So just on a, uh, I don't know, this is trivia, but the second season was <laughs> largely filmed in Austin. And, oh, yeah, uh, that makes sense. And uh, really in Lockhart, Texas is where the sort of the town square was. Um, mm. Have you been there? You, yes, I've been there. Uh, it's about maybe a 30, 45 minute drive from Austin. Just a little town. They're known for their barbecue. They have <laughs> does it, three or does four it still look- famous barbecues. Yeah, they they have the traditional kind of town square there it's the yeah. it's like the little courthouse and everything oh man very kind of elaborate that's awesome that's i mean that's that's another a good uh, another good feeling to to have is to to go into like um <laughs> to, to to also submit yourself to like an uncanny feeling right to like be oh yeah in this it's place. so weird to be there y- yeah yeah and then yeah. <laughs> i tried to track down the church when i was there but i just i ran out of time i couldn't find the exact location i was just kind of driving around the town trying to find their church but mm. never did um, but also you might find this interesting. That's so awesome. one of my very early episodes I did with, uh, Mark Bristol, who is, he's a storyboard artist. And I mean, he's, he's worked on okay. countless amazing, amazing films. Uh, I mean, like the thin red That's line awesome. he worked on, uh, God, mm-hmm. I mean, dazed and confused. The, I mean, endless list mm-hmm. also worked mm-hmm. on the leftovers, which I thought was really cool. I was like, Oh my awesome. God, he's worked on so many of these oh. great films. He worked on Memento. I mean, the guy is one of the go-to uh, storyboard artists, probably in the in the field. Oh, that's awesome! My, did he? Did he oh, hear yeah. any tidbits? Uh, oh man, he has. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but we start off the episode with a great story about uh, Terrence Malick. That at the time I was mm. just like, oh my! I couldn't believe the story. It's it's really funny. It's such a great story. It's a great anecdote. 
Oh man, all right, I'm gonna check that out. That's gonna be yeah. It's like a good two. He's all, he's a big Blade Runner fan, but yeah, I mean the stuff that he's worked on. Mm. I mean, look him up on IMDb. It's it's insane the mm-hmm, credits mm-hmm. that he has. And then <sighs> yeah, that's a good uh, poll. How do you get him? <laughs> so randomly, when I was I went to uh, Texas. Well, I told you I went to Texas State, right? So uh, yeah, yeah, Texas we State. We covered yeah. as part of one of my grad classes the uh, South by Southwest the interactive festival. Mm. So kind of like the tech techie thing. Well, he was on a panel and like one of mm-hmm. our, like we were supposed to interview, we had like a WordPress blog set up to cover the festival and kind of one of the okay. assignments, was, yeah, find two people to interview and, you know, throw it up on the, on the <laughs> blog or what have you. So I'm just kind of going through all the panels and I yeah. see Mark Bruce was like, Oh, storyboard artist. So I just emailed him and ended up interviewing him after his panel and then he's like, and I had no idea all the other stuff that he's done. So yeah. then he's telling me, oh, yeah, I worked on this and that. And I was like, holy shit. Oh, my God. That's awesome. That's so good. You know what? Yeah, just send an yeah. email and sometime. This was you know? like, and, okay, yeah. so that was yeah. in like 2009, I think. And then, I mean, I started mm-hmm. the podcast, I think, in 2017, maybe. It's been mm-hmm. like two and a half years at this point. And so... He just hopped up on, he was, we're friends through LinkedIn and he just popped up on my feed and I was like, oh shit, I should reach out to him. And this, I mean, this was like, I had maybe four or five episodes at that point. And so, yeah, it was pretty big. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. That's super dude. Um, yeah, I, there, there's, um, there's a, okay. So there's like a line for me just to go back to this fiction thing. There's a, there's a line for me where like, I kind of, I would never, I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, I would never want to be on the set of like my favorite show. Like I would never want to see it because like I love so much that the fiction right. of it that like to be there, but you know, I storyboard, if I saw storyboards of like my, like that, I think it's still, it's still evocative, right? It doesn't, it doesn't literalize the thing. It's not like, um, oh, you're on the set of community right. and there's no ceiling. Yeah. Like, of course, because of course there's not because there couldn't be because you couldn't shoot it. And it's just like, I don't want to see that. Right. I want to see the table. I want to see the study room. I want to believe it's a Greendale. I want to believe it's in a, you know, it's in a, it's in a school um, like I, you know, would have been to or taught at or something like that. Like that's that's um, uh, anyway, because that, that those that, that like being um, I think there's like there's something interesting and in, 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 in teasing like of. Uh, there's a conflation between like being like invested in like the fiction of something fictional and like willingly being like a sheeple, <laughs> you know, like I think there's this and, and I think that there are two, there are two different things um, uh, about, about that, that like the capacity to get wrapped up in something is, is good. The cynical position of just like, Oh, you, you're really, you thought that those characters were in love with each other. Well, I'm on the outside <laughs> and, uh, I can like, I can tell you what all the problems are cause I've been on TV tropes and I know what the bad tropes are in this show and blah, 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 blah. blah. And that is like, um, yeah. not yeah, that, that's, that is, the, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What were you going to say? <laughs> oh, I think it's funny that you mentioned that because, so I have a, l- a tiny bit of background in film production I've mm. done some shorts and things like mm-hmm. that, edited my own stuff. So I do sometimes kind of catch myself, especially when there's like a shot reverse shot sequence. I'll be like, oh, I can tell, like I can tell 
oh, the yeah. cuts or like it's a stand-in or you know what I mean? Little mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. like that that kind of yeah. can sometimes take me out of things. But when I'm looking at it through that lens, but well, it's, it happens with me with with uh, with with narrative where where like um, oh, is that a throwaway line in the first five minutes? That's gonna come back later. Like it's just oh, I yeah, don't know, right. you know, like you do, <laughs> what is it? You like do, Chekhov's uh, Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun. Yeah, Chekhov's gun is is. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I talk about that a lot actually in my classes, and um, as a narrative principle, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, obviously, it, go, it's, it comes from the stage, and the idea is everybody knows this as as Chekhov's gun as like if there's a gun in the first scene, it needs to be fired by the final scene, or like I think it's the act one, it needs to be fired by the end of act three, or something like that. Um, the but what it actually is is a it's a principle of like efficient storytelling. And like, do not, do not put something that seems like full of meaning into your scene un- unless you intend to use it. It's almost like that that trope, like don't point that gun at me unless you intend to fire it. Right? It's like it's the same. Don't put that gun in the show unless you you know you intend to use it. And um, the there's there's a a lot with with that idea, which is like do not you know like it, it's kind of against like bloated storytelling, but it's also like. Um, I think how can you make a lot of a little, and I think that Breaking Bad super good example the ricin, which is not used, but like continually like brought up and not used like for like three seasons until it is used right, and it's like um, so how do how do you it's it's an idea that works so much better for film and stage plays than it does for television because what television has to do or something or any, or something serial is that it has to be constantly expanding its world. It has to constantly be showing you like, Oh, you thought this was all the show was, well, the show can actually be this. And that's another part of the trouble with endings is that w- when the, the red wedding happens in game of Thrones, you're like, Oh my God, anything could happen on this show. And then by the end of the show, you're like, actually no, like these five things could happen. That's it. It was just it was just like these five things that that was all this was going toward. And it sort of feels like a betrayal. But again, that's like to me, that's symbolic castration. But it feels like uh, like I trusted you. You said you could give me anything. And then it was like a narrowing down of of expectations or, you know, as you got because things that has to end and you just have to you got to you got to pick a path. And so that's where, like, I think. Chekhov's gun in the context of uh, television is really, really interesting to look at because um, if everything you brought in to a show did have payoff, I kind of think that's boring and that's predictable. So you, ha- yeah, you know, so you have to have red herrings. You have to have MacGuffins. You you know, you have to, you know, it, it's kind of like a shell game between like which, what's the Chekhov's gun here? And that, that's, that's like, so the, the best of shows manage that. And I think like sometimes shows get into it's like oh well, we brought in so much we have to pay off so much and it's like no you don't you you have to tell uh you have to tell a story that <laughs> I, I i don't want to be provocative and say that you have to tell a story that disappoints i don't think that that's true. but in in a way you have to tell a story that doesn't pay off everything you brought into it and so it's sort of like um it's like with tv with Chekhov's gun it's like with a little bit of an asterisk like yes Think about it. Think about be be thoughtful about the things that you bring into your world. Uh, you know, do not bring in too many things more than you can use them. But you do have to bring in a lot of things. And if everything you brought in meant everything, then like 
uh, you, you, you risk the show just being like, um, it's kind of, it's kind of hysterical in, in, the, in the strictly psychoanalytic sense where just like everything is the most important thing that has ever happened. And every, every element is the most important element that has ever elemented, you know? Uh, and, and that's, uh, that's, that's not, that's not really good either. That's like, a, and, and not to, this is not to bag on like fan fiction, but sometimes fan fiction ends up being like that where just like, like everything means something like, like uh, it, 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 or it like picks up like, Oh, this was a dangling thread left in this thing. So I'm going to make it mean everything. And it's, and it's like, um, that's, uh, anyway, that's, I mean, there people write about this in like, uh, in, uh, fan fiction studies, which is a, a bit of an, uh, like an outgrowth of reception studies. It's like a grog, kind of a growing field in academia. So, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, certainly something that you have to, with a show, a TV series and a, something serial, you have to navigate like, uh, um, you know, what's, when is a cigar just a cigar and when is it, when right. is it everything? I guess. Yeah. That kind of makes me th- think immediately to the Watchmen finale and mm. the egg in particular. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, I think that that's such a great Chekhov's egg. Chekhov's egg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the whole thing is that, you know, they, um, I, it's a great point you bring up because there are just so many eggs on that show. All right. And it's just, so the question is, um, you, you, you're just like, Oh, this is just like more egg stuff the first time that you see Dr. Manhattan say like, you know, that's, uh, like watch the eggs or something, you know? And then, you know, then later when he's on the pool and he says, this will be important later. And it's just, it has to all be kind of like mesmerizing and baffling and, and not everything can pay off for that one thing to pay off. And that's the, you know, that's, the, that's, that's the like complicated, almost like the complicated, like, like, uh, it's, it's a dialectical kind of like narrative math that you have to do as a producer of a, of a, of a serial show. And, and like, when, when are these, when are we going to get these quilting points and, you know, and, 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 right. and, and what, and what are they? So, and that's, uh, yeah, it's a it's a much it's a much trickier game than the uh, the YouTube screamers would, would make it out to be. But, you know, that's it. That's, you know, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's that's where we are with that. I think that it kind of feels like a pretty good stopping point just in terms of length. We're a little under two hours and I'll let you get back on with your afternoon. But any other kind of maybe. No, I don't have another life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think just that, you know, um, I, I, w- I will say this to uh, the the bad episode of your favorite show tells you so much more about what that show is than the best episode. I, I, I think that um, it, 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 it's it snaps into focus like what's going like it really, um, you know, the um, did you watch Lost? I, I did not watch. Lost. You never did. I never it's watched super. Lost. Uh, you got to watch it. It's it's really great. I mean, if you, you like Watchmen and, and Leftovers, make the do the Damon Lindelof Rate triple the trilogy. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's um, there's this episode called Expose, which is, I think, the most critically reviled or the a Stranger in a Strange Land. Either way, both of them are from season three. And um, they one expose is a great example. It's a, it's a bad example of what loss is because it tells a self-contained story with like kind of no more mystery. And so it's like radically against the form of that show. And then, 
Stranger in a Strange Land is this story of like how the main character Jack got his tattoos and what they mean. And it's like it, it also shows you that like, look, not everything can mean something. It's, it's like I think it's really pedagogical. It, it's like not everything should mean something on the show. And I, and I think that there were a lot of textual signs in that show that like, look, um, sometimes, you know, that like if if like the 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 kind of like conspiratorial theory crafting of like making every everything like make meaning like it's just it's it's too it's too much. And what it leads you to is like episodes like this where we find out about a real person who has real tattoos and you just pretend they have diegetic meaning. And it's like, um, that's, well, that's not, it's not super good. It's a bad episode of that show, but it is like, it teaches you about when that show pays off and when that show sings that it is working with, uh, like a, you know, a slimmer economy of like, like objects, mystery and meaning and, and revelation. Um, and so that's, uh, and you can't get those without the bad episodes. That's the, that, and that's a, that's a kind of a big thing is that like, um, you know, sometimes see this, like, this is like mostly online. This is certainly not an academic criticism, but people will bemoan having to like, um, like, Oh, there's just so much setup in the seat. Like I saw like, um, actually, um, IGN has like their reviews of Watchmen is like first four episodes were a little messy, but then the next four were great. And it's like, don't you understand the only reason why you cared about anything in those second four episodes is because of those that you just called messy. That's the only reason why you care about it. And that that this thing that you are, you know, that you're lauding is great depends upon this thing that you are also saying as less than. And so like that, that um like, again, like sort of like inverting that kind of like expectation of evaluation, I think is super important. And I think that, um, an embrace of, uh, you know, an embrace of the gap of the, of the, of, of, of there not being uh, a big other to, uh, you know, bring together all, uh, and justify all meaning in something serial, I think is like, is pretty important. And I think that, you know, just in general that, um, uh, one of the things that I think I said this to you uh, pre-show that I just want to kind of nail down now is that like, you know, psychoanalysis in, in, in uh, media studies, uh, right now is like, something that I would say is um, kind of like is, is out of fashion. Uh, and and like I've had a number of people like well, well-meaning people tell me um, that I should not do psychoanalysis. And uh, for again, well-meaning, totally well-meaning reasons. Um, wait, hold on a second. Oh, there we go. All right, my we're getting to the end of the garage man <laughs> gotcha. track. So I was getting nervous. All right. OK. All right. So the uh, end <clears> of the they track. Told, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, the very, very nice Coover. Um, so, yeah. And part of the reason is that, like, th- there is this pervasive sense that, like, uh, it's kind of over. Psychoanalysis had its moment and then it's over and there's not new things to say about it. And I that is one of these things where in a lot of like media writing, like you'll see people talk about like, Ooh, Mad Men and the uncanny, or they'll talk about like uh, repetition and um, arrested development or, you know, they'll talk about um a whole host of different things using psychoanalytic terms, but as though they are like dead, 
like it's like Latin. We're not adding, you know, Latin's a dead language, not because like nobody studies it or like speaks it wherever. It's because there aren't new words being added to it. And that's kind of a, a lot of folks approach to psychoanalysis is that is that it's dead. We're not adding new understanding. It's just like it's it's over. It was it was Freud. And then it was Lacan. If you want to go there. And then uh, there is some stuff in the 70s and then it's over. And we, we kicked it out for X, Y, and Z reasons. And, um, you know, what I tried to offer in our conversation is just like ways of expanding that uh, psychoanalytic understanding of like really popular phenomena that engages everybody, re- like regardless of levels of education, background, like whatever, like this stuff cuts across, I think, so many different spheres of, uh, of, of, of life has lived. Okay. And, and people in places. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I've certainly, again, it would be, uh, it'd be too much and, and violate the, 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 the rules of psychoanalysis to say that I think this explains everything. I don't think it explains everything, but I think, or I just tried to offer here is a, uh, way of understanding, you know, uh, popular texts and ideas, narrative, seriality, desire, you know, the end, how do you figure the end through the psychoanalytic lens? Cause I think that there is just uh, so much more to say and uncover here. And, you know, I hope uh, people listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll give you a moment too, if you want uh, definitely plug the podcast and I don't know if you, if you oh. want to share your, any of your <laughs> social media feeds, et cetera, et cetera. Or you... Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, I uh, don't, follow me on Twitter. I have one. I don't use it. Um, I have a Twitter because there's another guy named Ryan Angley in uh, Canada. And he years ago got facebook.com slash Ryan Angley. And somebody <laughs> said to me, and I was like really upset about it. So I, um, I might mine is something else. Um, and someone said to me like, Hey, you know, Twitter is going to be pretty big. This was in like 2000, nine 2008 or 2009 or 10 or something like you should get <laughs> at Ryan Engley and I was like okay and so I have at Ryan Engley and like uh five six years later the whole plan paid off because I started getting tweeted tweeted at because he had won some award or something and I was like wrong guy and he wanted and it was like kind of funny he seems really nice but he wanted to switch handles and I totally ceased all uh, communication. So no, don't follow me on Twitter. Cause it doesn't, it does not exist. It does, but it doesn't. Um, but yeah, check us out on, uh, on why theory, which is on, I think a lot of different, um, uh, podcasting platforms. I'm pretty sure. Oh, well, oh, so I, uh, it's on the definitely Apple podcast iTunes, app yeah. and SoundCloud. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. on iTunes. Um, and I think I've seen that people listen on like Stitcher and like all kinds of other stuff. So it's definitely on there. It's not on Spotify. Um, I got to talk to Todd about that if we want to do that or not, but, um, yeah, that's the best thing. Um, I am also amenable to like, uh, especially people who are like, I was just very recently a graduate student. So if anybody is in an academic and they want to talk about, um, uh, grad school stuff, academia, these kinds of things. Uh, I, my email at Pomona, this is ryan.angley at pomona.edu. I'm totally, um, there for, for, for emails. I will tell you, this is a terrible time of the semester (laughs) for me to respond. Um, and then I'm also, you know, I'm, I am trying to, uh, I am trying to get uh, tenure because that's what you got to do. So like if I do not respond to your, you know, to your email, like, like is, is not personal, um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, but that's, that is, uh, 
that is where you can you can find more of me talking about things and uh, reach out to me and uh, and to Todd as well. Not through my email, but you know. But uh, once again, thanks to Ryan Ingley for joining me. And this will be podcast. Gareth Cooper Cherry signing off. There are moods of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is podcast.